Okay, so this is a very spur-of-the-moment thing. But here at Chabad, we like to do spur-of-the-moment things. But the, the only thing we do is spur-of-the-moment. We, we struggle with long-term planning. ADHD for the win. Anyway, um, by popular demand, we're going to start a new series. Or maybe it'll only be one episode. Who knows? But the, the theme is um, Shower Thoughts of Judaism. Basically... You're familiar with all the basic stories of the Torah. You're familiar with all the you're familiar with all the basic holidays and their themes, but there's all these details, missing gaps, that you're not quite clear about. So, we're going to try to address them. I might not have all the answers. We're totally winging it. This is a very organic conversation. I want to welcome our guests, Ryan and Neela, the neighbors from across the street. On the verge of graduating. And um, apparently they have these shower thoughts all the time, not only when they're in the shower. And we finally said, that's it. We're going to get, we're going to sit down. We're going to put out a recording. We're going to put out a podcast and we're going to try to address the shower thoughts of Judaism. So maybe when I put this into production with my uh, post-production team, we'll get like a, a running shower sound effect in the back running the whole time. Of this podcast. That would be nice. Yeah, we maybe do that. Like, all right. Anyway, so I'll put this here. Fire away. Reincarnation, true or false? True. Next question. Why? <laughs> <laughs> the podcast's over. So, reincarnation in Judaism um, is something that I, I, don't, I don't think there's much debate about in Judaism. Uh, certainly, according to the mystics, the sages of the Kabbalah, um, reincarnation is a thing, um, but not to the extent of you would remember your past lives or have any clue about it. Um, and the, the basic premise of, as to why reincarnation is a thing in Judaism is basically that every single soul must fulfill all of the commandments of the Torah in its lifetime. And if it did not manage to do that in one lifetime, it'll come back again and again until until that's done. That's the basic theological premise behind Jewish the Jewish belief in reincarnation. And that's that in a nutshell. Just to add one more little point, because that's the purpose of your existence. Yeah. The reason your soul was generated into existence in the first place was to be able to come down to this world and do all the mitzvot so as long as that hasn't happened the soul hasn't really fulfilled its its purpose its raison d'etre meaning of being its purpose so that has to happen one way or another if it means multiple lifetimes it means multiple lifetimes God has patience um Why were the Jews split into 12 tribes to begin with? As opposed to not one five. tribe. Just being or everybody. Just, we're all hundred. That's it. Why mm-hmm. we need tribes. And the, if there were different customs between the tribes? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Like you have... Um, 
sort of the beginning, the beginning, the origin story of the very first generation of, of the Jewish people. Where does the Torah start to define that or describe that? Is when Jacob and his family come down to Egypt to get food. They're reunited with Joseph. And they start living a life in Egypt. That's when the Torah starts to refer to this group as the children of Israel, which is the name that we mm-hmm. stick with for the rest of time. Israel is Jacob, right? It's his other name. Children of Israel is basically the family. And then that name just sticks. Um, so from a very from a very just historical perspective, that's that's the first generation of the Jewish people. Like up until that point, we don't really have a group of the Jewish people. We have Abraham, we have Isaac, right? The two other patriarchs of Judaism didn't have, A, they didn't have large families, B, they only had one son going on the right path. Mm-hmm. So there was no group. There was no people. There was person. Jacob's children is the first time you have a group, uh, A, a large family, B, the entire family, all going on the right path and following in their father's footsteps. This is the first time you can speak of the children of Israel, the, the, the people of Israel, the, the people, the Jewish people, even though it's not really formalized at that point. And so that's where sort of the template is set. And template is set with, with Jacob's children, and they are the 12 tribes. But, you know, spiritually speaking, we also have teachings about the, the diversity of the personality of each tribe has a unique personality. It's reflected in the fact that when, when Jacob blesses them and when Moses blesses them, they each have their own unique blessing. Every tribe has a different a different vibe. Hey, that's a good one. Every tribe has a different vibe. I wasn't even trying to Make be too cutesy and rhymey, dropping bars here. Um, but every tribe has a, has a different vibe. And it's important that we don't have a... a you know, one big mush conglomerate of we're all the same or blah, just fit into this, you know. I feel like most Jews today don't consider themselves to identify with the tribe, though. Oh, so one sec. So the role that tribes have, not talking about right now, today, but yeah. as, a, as a template for the Jewish people, is that there's legitimacy to having a different vibe as part of the broader Jewish people, yes, you know, Shabbat is Shabbat. I don't have a different vibe, and like, mm-hmm. I do Shabbat on Tuesdays. Okay, whatever. That's that's beyond the scope. But within the the context of the Jewish people, <coughs> um, there's room for diversity of personality, for style, right? Introvert, extrovert, right? Creative, analytical. There's room for that kind of diversity. It's okay. Different tribes will focus in different areas and, and, and excel here and be weak there and we each complete each other. That's that's actually the basis for unity. Unity is not we're all the same. Unity is we're each very different, but we complete each other. We need each other. It's it's reciprocal. So um, that's that's basically the the origin story and it and it's actually critical to building a, a cohesive, united Jewish people. Nowadays, to your point, we don't really know, aside from somebody who really has an, a long-standing tradition that their family is, is a Kohen, 
or a Levi, we don't really have any idea what tribe we're from. Um, we did lose 10 tribes. They were exiled, um, I don't know, roughly 2,000 years ago. Uh, 10 lost tribes. Um, many believe that they ended up in Africa, and that's the origin story yeah. of, of the African Jewish community. But we've lost touch for so long that we don't really know for sure who's who. Um, and, and certainly for a regular Jew who isn't a Kohen and a Levi today, we don't really know what tribe we're from. Most likely from the tribe of Judah or Benjamin. Mm -hmm. all, the other two tribes left in the kingdom of Judah. But I don't know for sure. And... Uh, um, What's it called? The uh, the DNA test isn't going to help much. So when Mashiach comes, we'll have a we'll reestablish tribal tribal lineage. And... Was the Rebbe Cohen? No, the Rebbe was a uh, Israel regular Jew because he was descended from the house of King David. Okay. King David's family was from the tribe of Judah, so they were the kings, the leaders, but they weren't they weren't Cohens or Levites. Okay. Are soulmates real? And if they are, can you have multiple in mm. one lifetime? Oof. Mm. So the Zohar says that soulmates are real. And that's actually the reason for the joy at a wedding. The joy at a wedding is the reunion. Why are we so happy? Right? They can file taxes together. What? Can't even do that in Canada. Um, the joy at a wedding is the joy of reunion. You're reconnecting with someone you knew a long time ago. You haven't seen, you lost touch with. Um, so definitely soulmates, basically the notion that, that a husband and wife are, are two halves of one soul. Every soul has a masculine side and a feminine side. It gets split up to men and women. And then you find each other. Mm -hmm. Hopefully. So not multiple soulmates? Not really. So... No, I don't think so. So the Talmud speaks about how, um, you know, uh, a second marriage, if a second marriage happens, mm -hmm. you get a spouse based on, you know, who you are, based on your deeds. Mm -hmm. You earn sort of the, the spouse. Mm -hmm. The first marriage is just set from heaven. Uh, that's the soulmate idea. Um, so your soulmates, when you get reincarnated, are you always the same souls? Getting married? That's a good yeah, question. Yeah. You know, on a practical level, you know, it, it's it's kind of hard to know for sure. Did I objectively meet my other half soul? Mm -hmm. Like, there's really no way to know. I think you just have to go into marriage. If you're going into marriage, you go into marriage with the assumption yeah. that this is it. Okay. And uh, if this is my soulmate, then you know, how can we let this little fight separate us? We're, we're going to work it through because we're soulmates. Like, we're not mm -hmm. going anywhere. But there's really no way to actually, you know, objectively. Like God's not going to tap you on the shoulder and say, by the way. Good job, you found them. Good job, you found them. Or she ain't the one. Keep looking. Like, well, that's stressful. <laughs> <laughs> For the most part, you make it work and, you know, your partner becomes your soulmate, whether you like it or not. You know, it's just. But like you and Rivki, for example. In mm -hmm. your next life, you're Jacob, and she's Leah. Maybe. Do they 
Not together? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe you miss each other. I don't know. I don't know if anybody knows. No, but Jacob and Leah will hopefully approach marriage in the, with, the, with, the, with the attitude that you are my soulmate. We're meant to be, and we're going to be together. We're going to stick it out. Yeah. So, that's that. Um, why do rabbis grow such long beards? Well, the Torah says that you shouldn't shave, destroy. Well, the Torah says you shouldn't, shouldn't destroy your beard, literally. Um, some opinions. There's a big debate what the definition of destroying your beard means. Some opinions hold it means any form of cutting the hair on your face for men, not for women. I would assume. Just to be safe. <laughs> and some opinions say it only refers to um, using a razor. But if you can cut it with a scissors or other forms of removing the hair, it's not a problem. So, what that means is that everybody agrees that using a razor to shave is a no-no. Question is, can you make use of other forms of hair removal? And that's where you have the bigger debate. Um, there are rabbis who shave. But I would like to believe that they're shaving in a way that doesn't require a razor. And certain electric shavers... Um, function in a way that's like a razor. Certain electric shavers function in a way that's like a scissors. You have to be a bit of an expert on the mechanics of uh, of shaver design. Scissors are good. Scissors, according to some opinions, are good. If you're going to shave, at least make it, you know, make it with the method that's not unanimously a violation of the Torah. Because I always thought it was more about not like putting scissors to the, like your skin or. Wait, no, 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 it's it's just the method. The razor cuts so close, it's basically eliminating eliminating the beard. Scissors or the scissor-like shave doesn't cut doesn't cut as close. A little stubble left or something there, so it's um, you know even a five o'clock shadow. There's something there. But um, if you're asking me, um, the only time once in my life I got some facial hair cut. When I was about 14 years old, I was getting a haircut in a non-Jewish barbershop. I was out of town, needed a haircut, and um, I wasn't experienced enough to know that you have to tell the barber, don't touch, you know? You had a beard at 14? I had little peach fuzz sideburns. I was very, very proud of. <laughs> really, really proud of. Like, and let me tell you, that, that was probably the, the, I don't know, the, I don't know. Whatever. I was very proud of my peach fuzz sideburns. And before I knew what was happening, you know, like space out in the middle of a haircut, just sitting there. Before I knew what was happening, the barber went, zoop, zoop. Like, what the, 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 what, what did you do? I was devastated. It took 14 years to It grow. grew back. It grew back. Um, but yeah, but certainly in Chabad and many other religious communities, um, we go with the opinion that any kind of hair removal is a violation, so you just leave it. And when you just leave it, you see what kind of genes you have, right? Some people just leave it and then have a beard down to their waist. Some people just leave it like this is this is full natural length. It's not that long. 
You know? It's a little bit longer now than it was when I got married. You see my picture from my wedding in the front. You'll see that it's like, you know, like a half an inch inch shorter. It, you know, this is it. I don't think it's going to get much longer as I age, but who knows? I wonder how long yours would grow. That's one way to find out. <laughs> Just, you know, go and shave, shampoo every day. Very important. Beard maintenance. Huh? Could you, could you wax? Wax? Yeah, would that be... Like to rub... Like me, like the, the beard... Like the beard treatment? No, like... Oh, wax removal. Yeah. Oh. That would be destroyed the beard. That would probably be just... I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know. I don't want to... I don't want to say. Because I'm not sure. It's an interesting question. It must be very painful. It was, yeah. Oof. That's why I can't grow a beard anymore. But I did it for about three years. Really? Yeah. I mean, it'll grow back steadily and I'll have ginger and blonde. Really? Mixed in with it. Wow. I shaved after... Because I was scared of a razor. So oh. I'd rather do that. Really? And that was that was it was intentional. It was supposed to be permanent. Of, it was no, not supposed to be. Was I mean, that the I just, promise? I just did it. And, right, and but they weren't they weren't telling you like if we do this, it'll be gone forever. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I started that was unexpected. My mitzvah, and then I ended probably around grade ten or like, right around yeah. COVID. Uh-huh. Yeah. So. Interesting. That's why I grow back stubble. Like uh-huh. you can see, there's a little bit, but it'll never be. Like that anymore, which wow. is fine. Okay. You can do you can do a little sideburn thing. Yeah, it would look like a a Viking though, like <laughs> Norse, like this, just on my serious goatee. Cool. You can ask a question for a five minute explanation. Yeah, I can keep it to three minutes. I know, like I know about. We have a timer here. I'll keep it to three minutes. I understand free will. I get the whole premise of it and that God is <clears throat> allows people to practice freely and doesn't really intervene. But why would he allow bad things to happen to good people? Mm-hmm. Like what what would it be what would be people who follow the law, mm-hmm. people who are sure. good ordinary people, why sure. do they They suffer? Yeah. Happens voice. every day. Yeah. Daniel had that question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fabulous question. I have the same question. Um, yeah, the good ones, the good ones do suffer a lot. Um, the best answer I ever heard to that was, if you knew, right? If let's say I could answer you satisfactorily, right? Mm-hmm. What would happen then? Oh, then. I mean, You'd be okay with it. Yeah. That's a terrible place to be. You'd be okay with suffering? Yeah. Well, yeah, you should be suffering. It's good for you. you I know, know why. I was going to say, you'd know the reason behind it. Right? It's one of those things like humans, we're not supposed to know. It would mess us up if we knew. Mm-hmm. We would be much worse. You think it's bad not knowing? Try knowing. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Um between the options, I'd much rather not know and just be protesting and helping as much as I can mm-hmm. rather than, oh, yeah, that's why your kid died. <laughs> I, no, I don't want no. Let God deal with that. Let the rest of us yell and scream and, and help the people as much as we can and, and live with the question. I, those are your two options, right? Either you have the question or you get the answer. I don't want the answer. I believe there's an answer. But I don't need to know it. 
Mm-hmm. I don't want to know it. Um, they asked the Baal Shem Tov once. He said, they, the students asked him, said, you, you claim that we can learn something. Like this. Everything in the world can teach you a lesson. One of the Baal Shem Tov's big teachings was that you know, there's Torah everywhere. You can find you can find Torah. You can find that Torah means a lesson. You can find a lesson for life, a lesson in serving God. Everything in the world, anything that happens to you, anything you see in here, can teach you something about your relationship with God and how to grow as a person and so on. So they asked him, "What's the lesson from atheism? Like, how could being an atheist or the idea of atheism teach you something about your relationship with God? Mm-hmm. That shouldn't work." So his answer was that there are times where many people will say, oh, yeah, 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 God help them. You know, in Hebrew we say, Hashem Yerachim, Hashem have mercy. Said so those times are when you have to act as if you're an atheist. In other words, act as if there's no God. And roll up your sleeves and help. That's the sort of the, 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 uh, the religious or practical implication or lesson from atheism that there, there's a time to act as if there's no God. When people are in pain and people are suffering, and you can do something to help, comfort them, support them, whatever you can do, that's the, the positive lesson from atheism. Because to be a great believer in that moment is to say, ah, oh, God knows what he's doing. Everything's going to be okay. Good luck. Bye. I'm out. I feel all self-righteous. Meanwhile, I didn't help. Would you say that's a little too much pitil? What do you mean? If you believe so much in God and that you don't help in those moments. Ah. I feel like there are. Yeah, people. that's not even bittel though, because bittel would ask, "What what can I do right now? How can I serve?" That's that's just someone stuck too much, too deeply in a certain box, in a certain definition of what they consider to be faith. Mm-hmm. This is this is their own. Right, they're in their box of faith, and they fall into the same trap. Anytime you, anytime you put yourself in one of those boxes, you can fall to the same trap of taking it to an extreme. Mm-hmm. Bittel is the ultimate insurance, like we talked about. Bittel will always pull you out of those extremes because it doesn't let you get defined in those boxes. It will always bring you back to the question: What's my purpose? How can I help? What can I do? What's my what? You know. Mm-hmm. I don't have an agenda. I don't have a definition. I don't have a box. I don't. I don't have a, a party. I don't have an identity of this is how I do things. Like whatever needs to be done is how I do things. I'm here to serve. Yeah. Kept it under three minutes. <laughs> that wasn't five, was it? What? Yeah. I'm sorry, listeners. It's <laughs> probably one listener out there with a stopwatch mm-hmm. wagging his finger at his phone right now. I got a style. You have people with like stopwatches at the Seder? Oh, well, he timed you the other day. Ah. Oh, with the Megillah. Oh, the Megillah. Why is it Haggadah? Oh, it's a compliment when you time my Megillah reading. Are you kidding? It's like 17 minutes. The Mendel's story international no. from the Seder. I mean, I was too drunk to remember, but you can. Too drunk at the Seder? I was what's, eight. The, what's the song that was like? Yeah, I had the four cups of wine. I was young, I was like 10. I know, eight or what's 10. What's the song at the end? It's like. Uh, uh, Chad Gadya? 
Yeah. Okay. So we got to like. I was like 10. 13. Maybe. Right? Yeah. So I'm pretty much Peter's out at 13. And Dean of Bloom was like, Mendel, we're tired. In front of her, she's holding like, the kid. Like in front of the whole sleeping. show. It's so funny. <laughs> So funny. The whole show started bursting out and laughing. And then we all laughed. Like, it's four hours He was so he excited. He was like, 13. He was like, oh, he's standing on the table. He's like singing. And the whole congregation is like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have another question. I feel like this is like a very good for you for doing that. But, um, but as somebody who's probably more so, more often than not, like struggled to understand or, you know, in contemporary terms, we like to read something and take it at face value. We like to know what it's saying right away. I feel like a lot of the Torah and, and scholarly texts take parts of it apart that are not at face value. They have deeper meaning or metaphors. Um, have you ever found yourself in a position, because I know I certainly have, and that's part of my journey in Judaism, that where you doubt or you question whether or not certain rules or customs or uh, texts are true or if they're can even be believed because we don't necessarily always know if they're grounded in visible fact like if we can't see it and that's part of human desire is to want to be able to see it to know that it's true so have you ever like doubted anything a deep question <laughs> Questions of what is a man who thinks? Um, sure, of course. I, I mean, I I would like to believe everybody does. And it's not like I don't think it's anything you have to be. You know, sometimes we have anxiety about having anxiety. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes sometimes you could have you could have you know. I don't know if you could have doubts about having doubts. But you know, you could have you know, uncomfortable feelings or or feelings of inadequacy or, or failure or, or guilt for having those questions or those doubts. Like, at the end of the day, you know, we, we, we're composite creatures. We have a soul that sees everything and believes and is connected. And then there's also the other parts of us. We have a body. We have We have another soul that is not that spiritual it's pretty egotistical the animal soul and that soul is much more materialistic and 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 grounded in the physical and the tangible and and show it to me and and let me feel it let me touch it or else i don't believe it i don't i don't accept as true anything that doesn't process get processed through my five senses um i think that Part of, like you said, part of our journey is 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 moving through those stages. Hopefully, not getting stuck in one particular stage for a long period of time, um, and maturing. We're we're an ongoing work in progress. All of us. Um, you know, I think we all understand that a child's perception and a child's understanding of what is true or is believable is going to shift. Um, if you try to explain subatomic particles to a six-year-old, they probably know what you're talking about. They won't even able. They won't. Be, they won't even have the capacity to 
to laugh at you or agree with you or just it's just going to be poker face and run off and play with Lego. Because <coughs> um, a child doesn't have the capacity to pick up on, on such a subtle idea. You get older, learn a little bit about reality, learn a little bit about, little bit about physics. Hmm, guess what? This hard table that I feel with my fingers may or may not actually be what I feel it to be with my fingers. You know, according to physics, it's not quite that simple. So who's right? You know, my sense of touch or, or the science of physics? There's validity to your sense of touch, but it's not the whole truth either. Right, I think that's one of the ways we can we can apply the same thing. I mean, thank God for theoretical physics. Really, theoretical physics is like the most religious, spiritual aspect of science, and it really gives you sort of a, a scientific language for for spirituality. It's basically, talking about spirituality. Now, all that's missing is is a rabbi and the Talmud. But if, if this is pretty much Jewish mysticism, I really believe this is just my two cents. I really believe that the great reconciliation of the fake debate, the false dichotomy between religion and science is going to come through through theoretical physics. I think we're we're halfway there. I think I think that, but I think that theoretical physics is is already speaking the language of of Jewish mysticism. And I can have like I've had the the reason I said it is because we have a lot of theoretical physics in this town. We have a beautiful institute for, okay. for theoretical okay. physics right. down the road, yes. Perimeter Institute. Right? World-class world class researchers and yeah. scholars. And some of them are Jewish, as always. And I've had conversations with some of them over the years. Yes. And we get into the most interesting conversations with people who, you know, haven't had a thorough Jewish education. They certainly haven't gone to yeshiva. They certainly haven't studied advanced... Hasidic texts based on Kabbalah and he and I are having a conversation about the nature of reality I'm coming at it from my background my training as a student of Chabad philosophy and a Chabad rabbi he's coming at it from his perspective as a student and a scholar of theoretical physics we are literally talking the same language I, I kid you not it's, it's an amazing thing so that's what leads me to believe that um, there's hope there. But that was just a tangent. My point to your, to your question, my point is, um, you know, what's considered true and, and who decides what's true is a very important field to, to flesh out. You know, epistemology in, in, in a narrow sense, but, you know, broadly epistemology about, about life, about reality. You know, what... Based on what do we accept something as true? What makes something, you know, be 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 um, be valid? By what metric? Um, and there's different measures of, of truth, right? There's 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 mathematical truth. There's truth beyond a reasonable doubt. And the courtroom is not the same as as, as calculus. Mm-hmm. Um, and for these things too, for spiritual concepts, for concepts in the Torah, and 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 belief about God, and all these issues. I think it falls under the same spectrum of, you know, at, at certain levels of perception, it's very difficult to accept. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily proof that it's not true. It's just you're operating at a certain level of perception, which is not matching. It's like trying to view Jupiter through a microscope. Like, yeah, it's a good tool, but not for viewing planets. Mm-hmm. 
right? You want to see Jupiter, you need a telescope. You know, you're not proving anything. I looked in the microscope, I didn't see Jupiter. Jupiter. Really? Mm-hmm. Right? So, I had a teacher once compared this to, uh, he used the example of shortwave radio, which is almost non-existent now. So, I use the example now of, of satellite radio. Mm-hmm. But there's AM, FM, right? And there's satellite. If I tell you, suppose you never heard of satellite radio, and I tell you, Ben, there's this most amazing thing out there, radio with no static, no advertising, no ads, no 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 mumbo-jumbo, just music. And not only that, 75 channels of all the different genres of music, whatever you want. And then there's 10 comedy channels and 20 sports channels, and amazing, crystal clear sound, 24-7, whatever you need, 24-6. And you go to your radio. You go. <laughs> Sorry, that took me a second. You go. Me. You go to your good old AM FM radio, and you say, "This sounds cool. I'm going to try it out." You turn on your AM FM radio. You go up and down the dial, and you say, "You know, Moshe was smoking something because it's the same lousy ten local stations with lots of static, too many ads, and boring content." You come back to me and say, "Listen, dude, you're dreaming." I listened. I turned on the radio. I tried it. Doesn't exist. You're lying. Who's right? Both right. But I'm not lying. You need a different set of tools. Right? I'm talking about a reality that you can only access with, an, with a satellite radio receiver and a satellite radio subscription. You don't have those. All you have is an AMFM radio. Of course, it's going to seem like I'm smoking a pipe. And you're going to be convinced that you're being honest. And you checked it out. Scientific method, trial and error, does not exist. You're right. But you're also just completely lacking the tool for the job, and you're ignorant. So it's, 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 a, it's, it's a little bit tricky to say, this one's right, this one's wrong, this is true, this is false. There's levels of reality. What's true here is, is not true here, but that's just because the capacity that you have is different and the tools you're using. So there's a lot that goes into it. Mm-hmm. So you have to have a little humility before you say categorically it's not true. Mm-hmm. You're going to discover things in the next five years that right now you have no idea about. You're going to grow. You're going to learn. To you, those truths that you're going to discover, whether they're in science or in life or in relationships, whatever they are, right now they don't exist. In five years, they'll be ground zero of your reality. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? It means that we have a lot to learn. Mm-hmm. So a little humility and say, I don't know. Talmud has a beautiful expression. Talmud says, teach your tongue to say, I don't know. Everybody should have that as a bumper sticker on their car. Not just on their car, on the inside of the car. I'm really bad, it may sound very awful, but I haven't very, uh, haven't been terribly uh, active, I guess you could say, in the London... Well, say, is this, is this confession now? Is this the no, wrong no, religion? No, no, I, no, I hook no, you up yes. with the Catholic Church around <laughs> yeah. the corner. No, I know, I haven't been uh, terribly All active good. in the... Uh, Jewish scene of London, so I'm not terribly close. The to past that. is gone. The future doesn't exist. All we have is right now. Right now, you're very active. But I, I've, I've had this question for a long time, and I haven't been home to ask my rabbi, and that would probably require what we're doing right now. We can we can conference him in right now. Um, yeah, but uh, what would Judaism have to say on? I know slightly what Judaism has to say on forgiveness, mm-hmm. but what would Judaism have to say about? Forgiveness to a person who 
who not only does not deserve forgiveness, mm -hmm. but you can't forgive. Mm -hmm. You can't because you were not in the position because it wasn't done to you? Like, no, I can't like, forgive a Nazi because I'm not the one the Nazi did something to. Yeah, no, like, not in that, that sense. No, no. It, it's more so, it's, uh, it's almost, it's, it's almost mortally impossible. Like, like, not, like. Like, I, it's too high of a bar. It's like, I'm not a, I'm a, what is it You're called? not an angel. I'm a, I'm not infinite, I'm finite. Finite. Yeah, yeah, it's, you're it's, just a human being exactly. and it's too much to ask to forgive for something that bad. I hear you. Um... I think what Judaism says about this, number one, is you don't have a moral obligation to offer forgiveness if it wasn't requested. So the first step is that the person who, who created the problem, the person who, who caused the offense, or who violated the, the friendship, or whatever it was that happened, violated the relationship, they need to come and ask for forgiveness. That's step one. You don't unilaterally offer forgiveness. That's, there's no moral obligation in Judaism for the person who was offended to say, whenever you're ready, I'm happy to forgive you. Like that's that's just there's probably a good word for that in English, but yeah. it's not 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 a good. It's not a moral good. The moral good is that the person who offended realizes what they did and acknowledges it, has the courage to say, I really messed up here. I need to make it right to you. Can you forgive me? Can I make it up to you? Can I pay restitution? Can I fix what I've broken? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. That's step one. Mm -hmm. right? Now, assuming that happens, because okay, without that, we don't have a conversation. Assuming that happens, now the ball's in your court. Now is where your question begins. Okay? Um, in the laws of Yom Kippur, it says that... Um, if you offended someone and you're going to ask them forgiveness, so you go and ask them forgiveness and they don't forgive you. They, they don't accept your apology. They don't, right? Your job is to ask three times. After that point, there's not much more you can do. The person is not in a position to forgive, not, not willing, not ready, not able. Whatever the case is, you've done your part. You don't have to keep carrying that burden. How much, how much, you know, Humility do you have to have? You try three times to apologize, the ball's not in your court, you know? Don't they say God forgives you after three times? So between you and God, you're, you're, you're good at that point, yeah. But you still want to make the relationship right, and there's not much you can do. The ball's in the other person's court. Again, and this is where I think your question would come up. So... You know, one of the things that I've I found is is helpful for things like this, where you're really, really, really hurt and really offended and, and really just too wounded to to let it go, is to remember that you know forgiveness is is also a favor to yourself. It's not just about letting them off the hook. You can heal. You can move on. You can't really heal from what happened without forgiving them. Forgive, and, and you also have to make sure you have an accurate understanding of what forgiveness means. Maybe the reason that you're so reluctant to forgive is you think that if I forgive them, it means that, you know, it's all good. Nothing happened. Like, 
maybe that's not quite what forgiveness means, and you have to fine-tune your understanding of forgiveness to be able to forgive. Mm-hmm. Um, without forgiveness, uh, what's the expression? You're, you're letting somebody else live rent-free in your head. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it, it eats away at your energy, and eats away at your happiness and your quality of life. And like, You don't gain from that. You don't, you know... But, but sometimes that's the issue. That is just a, you know a, an exaggerated understanding or exaggerated definition of what forgiveness actually means. So it helps to talk us through and say, okay, so what actually is forgiveness? What am I actually offering when I say I forgive you? What am I putting on the table? What am I not putting on the table? So that could be fleshed out. It might help. But ultimately, Judaism definitely encourages us to forgive when we've been wronged and when we've been asked to forgive. And we, you know sincere apology and if there's the need for restitution and all that if that's being if that's being made if that's happening then the Torah encourages us to forgive and be able to move on and maybe maybe even restore the relationship so even maybe if the person doesn't ask to be forgiven you should forgive in yourself um I don't know I don't know about that because this one is too... I said, whatever we're talking about is assuming that the person has forgive, has asked for forgiveness right. and has assuming that they've made restitution. Now the question is, it's really, really bad. Can I and should I and how could I forgive? But like if person, a person never asks for forgiveness... The person in mind will not ask for It's too arrogant. Okay. So then the question is, you know, how do you move on? And, and how do you function? And, and that's a question for you and your mentors and your guides... Um, to figure out. I don't know if that's forgiveness or that's something else. Um, I, I don't know if the, the definition of forgiveness is, is possible without somebody asking for forgiveness. Um, it's almost like, you know, gratitude. You, you can't express gratitude to nobody. <laughs> I feel gratitude to who? The universe. Okay. Um, that's, that's an approach. Um... And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's maybe there's a way to forgive without being asked for forgiveness, you know. But I think there's probably some other thought process that you go through to to heal and move on when when somebody's not asking for forgiveness. Hebrew: The, the Israelis have a great expression, "Al tihitzodek tiyachacham." Okay. Now you do. Don't be right, be smart. Ah, okay. <laughs> I got certain words. Sometimes you get so stuck on being right that you do something foolish. Mm-hmm. Better be smart. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth to that. On that note, we're going to shut the shower off. It's a nice 43-minute shower. Solid. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever had a 43-minute shower in my life. And um, I think that the first episode of uh, Judaism's Shower Thoughts. Shower Thoughts. Right? (laughs) Pretty decent. So hopefully the first of many, but it all depends on the crowd because I can't produce this content without a few people sitting around the table curious and uh, looking to learn. So we'll keep it going as long as there are people sitting around the table. Mm -hmm. Laila Tov.